welcome to As It Comes, live from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and I have two friends, ooh, hashtag boasting, <laughs> I have two, hmm, stay with me. As we know, here in the UK, we're slowly edging our way back to normality via the route of vaccines, testing, and continued caution. And thankfully, because of this, it means that some performance opportunities are being offered to musicians. I will say nowhere near the level of performances we had pre-pandemic, but a very grateful and hopeful start. What this means is the return of the phenomenon of the last-minute gig offer. Remember those? Before coronavirus, you'd more likely be inclined to say yes, due to the nature of freelance work itself being very capricious, leading to a frantic series of events including quick-fire planning of logistics and travel, finding out the nearest place to source last-minute black clothing, and rearranging previously made plans. It's so stressful. But you do it because you think, oh, well, be grateful for the work, or oh, they may never ask again. And don't get me wrong, a lot of these lead to fantastic opportunities for many players, myself included. But after 15 months of having a teaching schedule that has, weirdly, provided me with the most stable routine of my life, plus making a podcast whenever I fancy, the idea of rushing around for a last-minute gig request is not something I personally miss. Back to my two friends. Last weekend, both of them received separate but similar last-minute performance opportunities. The first, at 10.30 in the evening, the night before the show. The audacity. The second, four hours before the start of the show. Two friends, two last-minute gigs, two very different reactions. The first declined, because they thought it would be a faff, and they were really looking forward to having friends round that evening. The second accepted with great gusto, embarking on a cycling journey of 13 miles to go pick up their black clothes and instrument, to the train station to jump on a 40-minute train ride to the venue, and plonk themselves down to sight-read some ridiculously difficult repertoire. Now, I know there are other factors at play here, such as how much energy you have at the time, the value of the repertoire, and perhaps the ensemble that's asked you to play, how much you value your social life, or even where you are in your career. And there's no right or wrong answer, because it's down to the choice of the individual. But as we emerge from this side of the pandemic, I wonder if we'll be hearing more stories of the former, the declining of gigs for the benefit of one's mental health, and less of the latter, which you could argue was more common before the pandemic. Which one would you choose? Just make sure that whichever one you choose, that it makes you happy in some way. Maybe running around frantically does make you happy. I know a lot of people that find that thrilling. Yes to the good gigs, and don't be afraid of saying no if you don't feel like it's right. Anyway, onwards to my conversation I had last week with two fabulous musicians, pianist Sarah Nichols and cellist Maya Bugge. As a duo, they've developed a show called Ballad of a Changing World, using their musical powers to speak up about climate change. You'll hear them talk about that, as well as Sarah's inside-out piano, which melds nicely with Maya's experimental cello techniques to create a new musical soundscape. We spoke about how change is empowering, and how the pandemic has tested musicians by pushing their limits on what they can achieve. Here's my chat with Sarah and Maya. <laughs> Thank you.
Sarah and Maya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me this morning here where I am. It's a beautiful, sunny June 2021 day. So 2021, the pandemic, there's this sort of air of optimism with live performance coming back. What's something that you're really looking forward to over the next little while? Maya, what's something that you're looking forward to? Well, you know, there's just been a few gig offers coming in and I did my first gig a couple of weeks ago and it was just, you know, quite emotional to be back in that space with the audience. Just more of that, I think I'm really looking forward to. And also, you know, I am a teacher, so getting back into teaching face to face and being with students is very inspiring. Yeah, I find that as well. Um, and I should mention you're a cellist, as am I, and a cello teacher as well. And it's very, very satisfying being able to have the sound of two cellos in one room, isn't it? It is absolutely, you know, we, yeah, I've never thought about what that actually does. And of course, missing playing along with Sarah in our duo as well. I'm really looking forward to being back in that space. Fab. Sarah, what's something that you're looking forward to in the next wee while? For me, at the moment, um, I'm just completely delighted that the weather has changed and (laughs) it stopped raining. (laughs) I'm looking forward to first gig, first real gig in over a year and going to Dartington to teach, mixing with people and speaking face to face. I mean, to be honest, we've only just met family again for, you know, the first time in a year, so... Sonically, it is so different to be with a musical instrument, obviously, in a room. I mean, I'm lucky because I play the piano, so it's very resonant. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's uh, it's been a really interesting challenge working with Maya remotely. You know, I think that's been the biggest thing that we've learned about on this show. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, speaking of live performances, you've got your upcoming show called Ballad of a Changing World, which is premiering at the Chowton Festival. And obviously, yeah, as you mentioned, you've had to work together remotely. Could one of you tell me a little bit, first of all, what the piece is about? The piece is about Kitty Wakes. It's about Kitty Wakes, you know, the bird Kitty Wakes uh, has inspired us. So we started the process of, of making it. When we met, we were really both into climate change and how we could think about climate change on our platforms, in our concerts, in our recordings. And so we um, initiated this collaboration, which is a co-commission between Cheltenham Music Festival and Arctic Arts in Norway. Uh, and the first kind of part of that was finding a topic around climate change that we wanted to look closer into. And very, very soon uh, I uh, uh, stumbled upon a new research project around how the Kittiwakes has moved. I'm from the very rural islands uh, in the Arctic uh, and grew up there with Kittiwakes as a, like a big part of my you know, every day. And meeting this scientist in, in the Arctic University and learning that the kittiwakes have now moved uh, from the bird cliffs into the cities. And they're really struggling. They're trying to adapt. And I just found this extraordinarily fascinating. And so the show uh, and the piece is all to do with us talking to these climate scientists in the UK and in Norway around these birds and getting inspired by the birds, I suppose. It's important to say a kittiwake is a a sort of gull, just for anyone that doesn't know. And also the reason why they're moving into cities is basically because the ocean is warming. So the food that they would normally feed on is going deeper. 
And uh, there's also increased storms in the summers, which washes their nests off the cliffs. So that's why they're a kind of early indicator. They're like a kind of warning sign uh, species. And the other really weird thing about the project is it happened that this is a, a feature of both the northern part of Norway, where Maya is from, but also Newcastle, where I'm from. So there's this kind of amazing uh, international link between the birds and between Maya and I. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it? Like using nature as your indicator that something is up. It's like how they often say that before a storm, dogs and cats go mental because they can sense something in, in the earth. But I guess it's like that. It's kind of like the earth saying that something is yeah. is changing. So tell me a little bit about what the show is going to consist of. We'll talk a little bit about the inside out piano shortly but how are you staging the show I know is staged as a uh, discussion or a meeting is that right the show itself that we're making now is is basically in a film format so because we had to make it in lockdown and it was for digital uh, kind of release if you like essentially what it is is a mix of conversations between Maya and I and the scientists and then pieces of music where Maya and I are attempting to create duos between Lancaster and Stroud and so what you get is a split screen where I'm playing the piano and Maya's playing the cello. And we um, explored loads of different ways of making music remotely together. As you'll know from making a podcast, issues of synchronicity, you know, latency, um, these things are, are the challenges. But also, you know, how to get into the same zone with each other. How do you create that feeling of live when you're miles apart? So it was really fascinating. We tried lots of different methods, recording a part and passing it on to the next person. Or uh, we even tried some software where you do live improvisation sort of down the line to each other with many adapters and cables. And so it's been like really, really fascinating, I think. I mean, I love learning new things, new you know techniques. I mean, any kind of challenge is totally an opportunity for me. And um, I find that fascinating. And now we're learning to you know, edit films and mixing the audio. And, you know, so it, it's quite uh, an empowering project, really, in many ways, because for us, it's about how do we adapt as musicians to lockdown? Yeah. And how are the birds adapting to their changing situations? So for us, it's very much a kind of parallel concept. That's how we've sort of set it up. And obviously, the work is for the audience to do in their heads about connecting this. And, you know, how do we react to change? What are we going to do? Mm. And I think how we have to be very forward looking. And um, this is something that I've noticed with a few of my peers in the pandemic, especially last year. There's only so much that you can do if you look back and think, oh, you know, I wish that we could be doing the things that we used to do. But I think things are going to change now, you know, like it's going to be completely different. And I think, you know, how we have had to upskill, you know, musicians as well, you know, in terms of recording. And I was like, I've never been big on the tech side. So, you know, I've really been <laughs> been challenged. And in that, that way, being empowered by change and being forced to change in that way. And I have to say, for me, I was always for a very long time, like holding on to this idea that we would be able to record together, to be together, to do a live performance or record. And then we went. But, you know, the fact that I could then play along with Sarah and she could play along with me in my own space, you know, in the thick of the pandemic, you know, it was a great thing. You mentioned the meeting. Um, the first kind of like R&D we did, 
that has kind of formulated the the groundwork, as it were, for this show was at uh, Snape Maltings. And uh, we had a residency there. We had five days to get a show together, having never played together before. And so we did it in the form of a meeting where we were going to solve like the climate crisis in 45 minutes. And uh, the shtick was quite funny because it was like, right, we haven't got much time. We don't really know what we're doing, but we've got to do something, you know, which is basically how I'm sure most of us feel a lot of the time. So it is kind of probably important to say that there was quite a lot of laughter as we did that. And um, certainly not being shy about sending ourselves up is part of the whole show. You know, it's very much not pious. It's absolutely us sort of flailing about trying to do our best. (laughs) I think that's quite often what happens if you've got only the parameters of 45 minutes to do something quite groundbreaking. Um, You'll really amaze yourself as to what you can do. (laughs) In terms of tackling the climate crisis through your music aside from the upskilling and the changing that you mentioned before how do you feel you're able to really communicate the severity of this crisis through your music i mean i think that music you know has obviously got that ability to to provoke emotions to evoke emotions and that is something that the topic is so massive and it's so devastating that i really feel like as musicians uh, and composers, we can find ways that, that the, the sound can offer something, I suppose, uh, in terms of reflection. And I think reflection is very important. And I think I just want to say also personally in this project, Sarah was ahead of me in terms of being a climate activist when we started working on this. And so I I very much felt like, yeah, obviously this is a big problem, but I don't know how to do it's too big and so I think the project and Sarah in particular inspired me to change that idea in my head from passive to active actually you know saying I can do something about this I'm doing something about this as a composer in this piece but I'm also doing something about this on an everyday level trying to educate my children when we go to the shops that's been quite quite an eye-opener for me. Yeah, I think everything Maya said, you know, about um, reflection, I think that's kind of it, really, that as far as I have kind of read from really top activists around the world, you know, people like Bill McKibben, who ran 350.org and so on, a lot of the advice is like, just keep talking about it, because it's about raising awareness. And it's about getting people to ask themselves questions. You know, it's not about us coming on stage and saying, hey, you guys, you need to do this, you know. (laughs) And so actually, if we give some facts, give some scope, and it's really moving when you hear the scientists that we worked with talking about this, they're really straightforward about it. It's really compelling. And then we play the music and give you time to think fundamentally. And that's kind of it. Yeah, I think it's finding your own voice, finding your own method of communication in order to keep talking about it. And for right. some people, it is, you know, for scientists, it's presenting facts and doing research. For other people, it's various forms of activism. But then there's also music as a form of communication. So it's all finding our own little ways of contribution. So I wanted to ask about the inside out piano, because this plays a big part in your work. Sarah, can you tell me a little bit about how you came about making this instrument so the inside out piano is if you imagine a normal grand piano and then in your mind take the place where the strings are which is obviously horizontal and literally turn it 90 degrees so they're running up from the keys vertically 
And that's what the Inside Out Piano is. The idea for it was for me so that I could reach the strings while I'm playing. It's absolutely not an original idea. People have been doing it for 100 years, reaching into the piano and (laughs) plucking a string or strumming. You just thought to casually flip it on its side so that you could do it easily. (laughs) That's literally it. I thought, why not change the shape of the piano? And then it's like, oh, yeah, right. Now, this is a large journey part of my life. It's brilliant because ergonomically it just works. You know, it means I can reach the strings without moving. So I can play the keys and, you know, strum away quite happily. But inadvertently, I realized that I'd actually designed a grand piano that fits in the space of an upright. So now we're actually building a lightweight version. And there's a whole nother kind of journey to making an instrument that maybe lots of people could access. Yeah, you are really harnessing this um, uh, idea of change, adaptability, I think. But I love that because shortly before the pandemic, I moved into a new flat and basically our mantra for when we were putting things into our new flat was harnessing the use of the vertical space. Right. Because I think people forget, right? And so then you end up buying things like tall shelves or hanging things, like everything is now hanging. And then you realize how much more space there is if you just think in a slightly different dimension. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I can totally relate to that. We've bought a farm, actually, and we're going to be building a house and like all sorts of things. So we're currently living in a caravan. So I can really, really relate to what you've just said. <laughs> I also just want to say in terms of working with Sarah and also for other musicians, the access you get to sounds that you've never really been with before. I've played with a lot of contemporary classical pianists, you know, who who hold over the piano like and almost break their back every time they're doing the strings. And you get a little bit of that sound, but it's really with a strain. And now they are just there. You can just decide to pluck a piece. You know, the pizzicato in the cello can be kind of echoed by a sound that, you know, was never accessible before. Yeah, that's really important, actually, the access to quarter tones or microtones, you know, the spaces between is very much what you get. And it's really funny, actually, the first time Maya and I played together, I had this kind of realisation that basically I'd been trying to play the cello on the piano for years. (laughs) You know, so it's like bowing or harmonics or pits or, you know, it's like, oh, I've just been playing the cello. I see what's happened to you. Yeah, next best thing. So you've probably really had to adapt your technique, haven't you? And and learn about all these different sounds. What's your favorite sound that you can make on the inside out piano? I don't know, so many. I mean, I, I quite like simple things like just muting the string or, I mean, obviously the rubber ball is like the sort of special extra where it sounds like a whale. But with Maya, I love just doing things like harmonics, actually. And, you know, they're so easy to reach. We've sort of created this very fluid language together. And also it's really interesting in terms of how we mix our backgrounds as classically trained musicians with lots of kind of free improvisation, but also something much more kind of harmonious and melodic than what you would normally call free improvisation. And so I feel like we've actually arrived at something that's really beautifully kind of fluid. We're able to go into the experimental textures space, but we're also really able to just play something that's, you know, beautiful and tuneful. So I've really enjoyed the journey that we've been on. And I mean, I would say (laughs) it's been quite kind of interesting and challenging, hasn't it, Maya, to find that? Because, you know, when we arrived together, I was already kind of drifting into minimalism again and Maya was definitely really experimental. So it was just quite fun the way that we have this huge shared range. So I think that's really special. I totally, totally think that's so true. And I also think the way that we have 
pushed each other and ourselves into new spaces with with the mixing because we quite often work on our own so you know the duo format and I met you remember when we first met at Cheltenham Music Festival which was a sort of frantic day of you know artists getting invited to commission a new piece and we were all didn't know each other and I'd been on all the websites and I just loved Sarah's websites because it said mom composer and pianist and I just thought great you know this is and the work obviously it's really interesting. So, yeah. So, Maya, tell me about some interesting voices that you contribute through the cello. You've got this kind of backdrop of the inside-out piano, this kind of sounding board which kind of reflects some of the sounds that you make. What are some interesting, maybe slightly less conventional cello sounds that feature in this piece? Well, I think, you know, the combination of what I can hold, which is the long melodic lines, which is obviously... Uh, yeah. Not new, they're very old, but you know, they're, they're about revisiting that world and echoing something that is from the past with, again, I have been exploring a lot with harmonics and the sul ponticello. How can you push those edges on the instrument? How can you be in control of the sound when you're playing sul ponticello, for example? And then, you know, you go out of the control, you lose the, you know, you don't know what note you're playing and then you go back again. And I think being in that sort of unknown space is a sort of common interest for both of us. I also think that I have revisited quite a lot of pizzicato techniques, you know, that I just heard from from Sarah plucking the strings and going, oh, actually, you don't just need to do it in that way. And I, I think that is is where the, our collaboration is, is really strong, is that we go, yeah, you could do it in this way, but what if you did it in, in another way? Or what if you made a film? Because this time we're going to have to make a film of the project. Shall we try and learn film editing? The brain is really flexible. The creative brain goes beyond. And as a classical player, that is obviously... Ooh, you know, it's it's challenging. Yeah, you're pushing your boundaries. It's totally. the, the neuroplasticity of being able to take on new concepts all the time. But that's the thing about pizzicato. I'm going to go into a little bit of a string nerd rant here. But we never really learn how to do pizzicato properly. I feel like we pick up slightly different nuances of the technique when we're sitting in ensembles or an orchestra and observing other people, which goes back to what we were saying before. But, you know, in terms of really advanced pizzicato technique we don't really delve into it do we no absolutely not and I do find that again and again as a teacher as well you know you say oh it says pizzicato you you do it in this way and you teach it for a couple of minutes and that's it whereas yeah. it actually you know I do a lot of jazz playing in bands and being the bass role and so have had to learn and take up quite a lot of techniques you know around that kind of pizzicato yeah. which is very different from the classical yeah. one yeah Jazz double bass plucking. I just have a funny image because a lot of the teaching that I've done has been, you know, telling students to make sure that your contact point is correct on the string, make sure you're not going too close to the bridge. Have you ever had, you know, moments like that in your teaching where you're telling students to do a certain thing and then have they ever seen any of your wild techniques and being like, Miss, you're playing right next to the bridge? <laughs> They certainly have, yeah, they certainly have. They quite often come to my concerts and I do get challenged, you know, on that. But also I quite often 
bring it into the lessons like we can learn how to play in the in with the bow so you get that sound that you need to get you know we can really work hard on that and we work on that for years but also you know the last 15 minutes of the lesson is composition or improvisation and you're actually exploring sound you know and trying to find it other sounds and and obviously for children that is you know uh, often very exciting you know absolutely yeah because I think a lot of students can get really caught up in the whole structure of grades you know very much within certain parameters but it's quite liberating just to explore an instrument in its entirety it's something I've observed with the inside out piano actually which is that it's uh, so kind of readily available to children. I mean, I spent a lot of my childhood trying to see the hammers move because that's what you're controlling. Whereas on the inside out piano, like you can't not see them. They're right in front of your face. And my daughter, you know, and son who have started sort of playing it when they're whatever, three or something, you know, they're just delighted by the fact that they see it's you know it's the kind of total feedback loop of seeing the hammers move and then of course they can reach up and give it a quick pluck or whatever I think it's brilliant what Maya's doing teaching you know the solid sort of foundation but then also showing the freedom and the extension because we wouldn't be being sort of true to ourselves if we didn't right I mean you know actually what we're saying is it's possible to know classical music and to play classical music, but also to look at your instrument in a much more holistic way. What can you do with it? Yeah, we're extending ourselves. We're extending the possibilities of our instruments. Are you going to be offering lessons on the Inside Out piano now? I, uh, I, I, try, I try not to offer lessons generally. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I've done my time with that. But, you know, I do do workshops. So, yeah, if anyone wants to hire me for a workshop, that's fine. <laughs> that's cool. It's when we start seeing inside-out pianos in shops, we'll be like, oh, something has changed. Yeah. It's been a massive yeah. shift. Totally. Yeah. That's, that's the dream. <laughs> Thank you so much for telling me all about your upcoming work. It's really fascinating to hear about that. So moving on, I have a segment in my podcast called the Wildcard Question Round, where you both get to choose what I ask you next based on three topics that I present you. So who would like to go first? Yeah, I don't mind. All right, Sarah. So your topics are, and you can choose one of them, favorite gigs, what I'm listening to, and because this is me, food. I want to choose favorite gigs and food, but never mind. Uh, I guess I'll go with food then. Oh, great. Okay, so anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a while knows that I love talking about food and how it relates to musicians. So I'd like to ask you, what is your favorite food to eat before a performance? (laughs) That's, uh, I mean, that's quite boring because it's probably half a banana. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that's the thing. I think it's very common to eat bananas before performances, isn't it? Because the potassium it's, or something supposed yeah, to calm you down. Yeah, you have to eat it half an hour before. It's your classic energy release, you know. Yeah. But why only half a banana? Why not a whole banana? Well, you know, bananas can be quite large. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what's really funny is I was hoping that you were going to ask me to say something about food and I was going to talk to you about me starting my 
extensive veg patch and how I'm delighted to be growing food now. But uh, that's never amazing. Mind. <laughs> no, but I love that because I'm growing vegetables as well. That's my pandemic pastime. Yeah, like, yeah. I started with the tomatoes and I started with courgettes and my potatoes are like really tall now. It's great. How do you have room for courgettes in a flat? I'm really fascinated. Do you have a big garden? I have a big garden. The garden cool. is probably bigger than the flat, which is quite funny. And it's that's very brilliant. sunny. Great. It's sun all day long. But you've just bought a farm, so I imagine you've got a lot of space for growing your own food, right? So yeah, we, we inherited a manure heap, so that's where the squashes are going to grow. And they're just Lovely. Gonna, they're going to cover it. Yeah, it's going to be delightful. And don't worry, it's pretty old manure. It's well rotted. Oh, well, that's perfect. That's what they love. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. And what else are you going to grow besides squashes? Uh, there's squash courgette, nasturtiums, rhubarb, strawberries, blackcurrant, redcurrant. There's loads of potatoes, peas, uh, rocket, beetroot, parsnips, carrots, etc., etc. I see some delicious meals in your future. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, we've got an apple tree in the backyard, actually. And loads so. of lettuce. Oh, yeah, we planted an orchard as well, actually. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're That's living so the dream. Yeah, yeah, it is. Inside out piano, inventing new ways of making music and growing vegetables. That sounds like a good combo. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of deliberate in the round attempt to respond to, you know, basically the, the IPCC news in 2018, right, which said we've got 12 years to, like, halve emissions. So... Buying a farm and, you know, doing shows about it feels like, yeah, the important way. Anyway, this is meant to be the jokey section, so carry on with Maya. <laughs> well, you still have to purchase your bananas, though. I notice you're not growing bananas. This is it, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I haven't done a gig for a year, so, you know, maybe I'll change to apples. <laughs> yeah, nice. All right, so Maya, it's your turn to choose. Um, I'll give you those topics once again. Thanks. So we've got favorite gigs what I'm listening to, and food. Okay, I'm going to go with favorite gigs. What's your favorite gig that you've ever performed in? I think my favorite gig was a solo gig at Manchester Jazz Festival in 2018 when I had moved to the UK and I'd been a mom for a few years and I was thinking, where am I going with my music? I met a guy who said, you should really be applying for this Manchester Jazz Festival artist development thing as a solo artist in the jazz world. And I was like, what? Okay, well, that's, uh, that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll try that. And I did it. And I was sitting in St. Anne's Church in Manchester and it was packed. I mean, it was 600 people, you know. And I decided to go acoustic and not do any amplification whatsoever. Yeah, it was, it was just a life-changing moment in so many different ways. So Yeah. I imagine something like that is something that you would have drawn upon a lot during the pandemic thinking like oh wow how things have changed right yeah exactly yeah no totally and and uh, how we need to find find ways of getting back to that and and wrestling with the idea of you know are we getting back to that or are we finding a new way of inventing ways of of, of being in performance which is more like me and Sarah doing now with our filmmaking and I think it's so interesting that it was the jazz festival right because ja it just proves that jazz in general is able to be so much more kind of open-minded you know that actually they're yeah. able to say yeah this free improv cellist lady <laughs> who's trained as a classical musician she's jazz you know I like that and actually uh, it was Tottenham Jazz Festival who invited us in the first place 
to come and respond to the commission, wasn't it? So yeah, it it, kind yeah. Of, there's an open-mindedness there, which is really, really healthy. And an inclusiveness as well. Have you ever found that you've been sort of excluded from things because of what you do? I just think lately I've sat more easily in that very generous umbrella of jazz uh, and experimental jazz. I've struggled more in the UK to find my way into the contemporary classical scene. That's also to do with where I live. There isn't that many classical musicians around here, you know. So it's, yeah, it's to do with the context, isn't it? One of my early ambitions in life was to play at the Wigmore Hall. And um, I was lucky because I did that. And then I was confused about what my next ambition should be because I'd sort of imagined it would take all my life to get there. But now you've said it, it occurs to me that the Wiggers hasn't, uh, you know, booked my inside out piano. So, you know. (laughs) Wigmore Hall, if you're listening. (laughs) They should get it in there. Yeah, they should. It doesn't take up that much space. It's a small stage. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Sarah and Maya, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been really joyful talking to you two about making music um, and also talking about food and how we extend ourselves as musicians. So before you go, can you tell us how people can find out more about yourselves and your work? Great. Okay. So thank you so much for inviting us. First of all, it's just brilliant to have this time with you. Uh, So yeah, you can find out more about my work on my website, mayabuga.com and Facebook, Solo. And also, I just want to say that in the show that we're making for Cheltenham Music Festival and Arctic Arts, we've worked with Tuna Reachen, which is a uh, biologist from uh, the Arctic University in Norway and uh, Helen Wilson, which is uh, associate professor in human geography. Is that right? At Durham in University. Durham. Yeah. And uh, my website, sarahnichols.com and uh, everything else. Look for Sarah Piano. And uh, I think you can book tickets now for the Cheltenham show. There's a Q&A, live Q&A with us and both the scientists after the show. So that would be great to um, to see some of you there. Is that something that will be accessible to people outside of the UK by any chance? Yes, it will be accessible to absolutely anyone. Yeah. Brilliant. Great. Well, thank you so much for letting us know. And once again, thanks for being on the podcast. Excellent. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah Nichols and Maya Bugge. It was so joyful chatting to them. They have a very special dynamic between them which feeds into their collaboration. So don't forget to check out their work in the show notes. Crucially for the spelling of their names because it might not be what you think. I couldn't help but look up images of the aforementioned kitty wakes because I didn't know what they looked like. And good news, if you're in need of cheering up, I highly recommend you do so especially kittiwake chicks. They're very cute, like a softer, rounder version of the typical seagull that you see at the beach. I haven't met one yet, but I'd like to think that they're less aggressive as well, less inclined to squawk in your face or steal your chips. But who can say no to chips? That's it for today. Special thanks to Rosnagi for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Tremendous thanks to Sarah and Maya for being my delightful guests in this episode. And as always, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, you can support the podcast by buying me a coffee on my coffee page. Link is in the show notes. 
get in touch at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com or on the website asitcomes.com where you'll also find all previous episodes and transcripts of the podcast. You can also get in touch with me via Instagram and Facebook where I highly recommend you give me a follow and like at As It Comes Pod. Remember to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to those who have already done so and thanks for continuing to spread the word. Chat to you soon and take good care. Bye! Thank you.